Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone. We've had a rebrand. You may have noticed we are now the History Hit Warfare podcast with me as your host, James Rogers. So some things don't change, but along with this new name, we've got an exciting new broader focus. Each week, three times a week, we're going to be bringing you episodes that range from the First and Second World War, as per usual, but can stretch all the way back to the birth of modern warfare itself, and all the way through to the secret conflicts of the Cold War, the hidden aspects of the War on Terror, and everything warfare from our recent history. So, stay tuned, and be sure to like, follow, share, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Now, as a war historian, I can tell you that it's pretty darn difficult to get hold of some of the sources sometimes, especially if you're looking into top-secret missions and top-secret intelligence. I can take you back to last summer. I spent three weeks in a stifling underground nuclear strategy archive, an agency that will remain nameless, trying to find out some of the secrets from the Cold War. At all times, I was pretty much under lock and key and under guard and not even able to go to and from the toilet without someone accompanying me. And this makes our next guest even more amazing, because it is Professor John Ferris, the author of the new best-selling book of 2020, I think, called Behind the Enigma, The Authorised History of GCHQ, Britain's Secret Cyber Intelligence Agency. And he's here to tell us about the secret history of British code-breaking from the First World War through the Second World War and even through to the Snowden scandal. How does he know what he knows? Well, he is the authorised historian of GCHQ. He has been down into those archives. He has spoken with the secret spies and he has had all the documents that he would possibly want handed to him, even more than he could ever look at in a lifetime. He has the kind of sources that make other historians salivate. So, this is not an episode to be missed. Here's the fantastic Professor John Ferris. Hi, John. Thanks for coming on The World Wars. How are you doing today? Oh, very, very well. It's 9.30 in the morning in Calgary, so we're in different time zone. Oh, wow. So we are in Calgary, Canada. How's the weather looking over there? There's a lot of snow on the ground, but it's above zero. We're headed toward minus 20 next week. Wow. Okay. 
Well, I won't complain about the weather we're having over here in Europe then. I think you've won that one. Well, what you've been getting is pretty awful, but it's actually our normal winter. <laughs> yeah, but everything falls apart here with even a centimetre of snow. You were in London, were you? As a graduate student, I was at King's College from 1978 to 1986. My father was in the Canadian Air Force, so I lived in Germany between 1962 to 66. So I'm really... A lot of my childhood was spent in other countries. Yeah, practically a European. There you go. Well, thousands of miles away from where you currently are is a secretive site tucked away in the suburbs of Cheltenham. I say tucked away. It is 71 hectares, a massive site really, which houses the offices of GCHQ. I think they call the building the donut for pretty obvious reasons because it looks like a giant donut. But you are the authorised historian of GCHQ. So tell us, if you can, what goes on at this site? Well, at the Donut and in the other offices of GCHQ, and there are many other offices in the country, what happens is the signals are intercepted. And these days, the signals tend to be primarily telephone or fiber optics communications or satellite communications. But during the Cold War and the First and Second World War, which we're dealing with is the interception primarily of radio and of some cable traffic. First World War, it's really medium frequency at best. By the Second World War, you're moving into high frequency and that's what goes on afterwards. Once you collect the signals, you analyze them, you try to break codes, you process the data, and even if you can't break codes, there's a great deal of intelligence to be gathered from what they call traffic analysis. Traffic analysis essentially is looking at the external features of communication links, see who communicates with who. You reconstruct communication links, which in the first and second world war lets you see how command works. And in the modern era, traffic analysis lets you see who any individual whose IP address you touch has been communicating with. So if you want to break down a terrorist network, traffic analysis is the first place to start. SIGINT begins literally when the First World War begins. The components were there before the war, but nobody had really thrown them together with the exception of the Austro-Hungarian army. But as soon as the war happens, everybody is able to see, boy, we're intercepting other people's radio traffic. Those messages are sent in either plain language or in code. And if they're sent in code, can we break them? And the answer is yes. Because one of the things about cryptography in the First World War is that it's very primitive and people screw up all the time. When you get into the Second World War, people are just repeating what they did in the first. There's very little new in principle, although the techniques for attacking cryptographic machine traffic are new. And so things that happen at Bletchley Park, which in lesser ways, Americans or even Germans attempt to do are new. So some techniques of code breaking are new. But otherwise, there's very little different there. And for what it's worth, what you're doing in 1915 is very similar to what you're doing in 1989 in many ways. Throughout the radio era, there's a huge amount of continuity in terms of SIGINT. So let's actually go into that World Wars period. Was it called GCHQ then, or was this kind of a broader organization of, what would it be called, like crypto-analytics? Well, in the First World War, there are all sorts of different organizations assigned to the task. And they all know they're doing similar things, but they all have different names. 
at the end of the First World War, they're merged into what's called the government code in cyberspace, which is simply intended as cover. And it does have some effect. For what it's worth, this may sound bizarre, but the British actually publish the number of people and their different civil service and military ranks involved with GCNCS all the way through to 1939. And no foreign country actually, <laughs> this may sound weird, but it's true. No foreign country actually sits down and uses this to say, we can determine the size of British code-breaking through this material. So the cover has some success. And what emerges after the First World War is essentially a diplomatic code-breaking organization linked to military intercept and code-breaking organizations. And it's more unified than any other SIGINT agency of the world at the time. It's better, I'd say, than anyone else. But it's primarily working against diplomatic code books and against material carried by cable. So when you get to the Second World War, suddenly this organization is attacking different traffic. And ultimately, the traffic you're focused on is primarily military or naval communications sent by high-frequency radio using different crypto systems, some of which are cryptographic machines, some of which are code books which are protected by super-enciphering systems. And that's just a means to change one letter from another while both the sender and the recipient know how you changed it. Now, what that means is when the war breaks out, the British, in fact, their main strengths aren't really relevant, although for what it's worth, they remain the number one diplomatic code-breaking organization in the world all the way through the war. And they're forced to turn toward areas where they haven't been as strong, which is not to say that in particular British Army code-breaking isn't good in the 1930s, it's just that it's small. And finally, they're caught on the back foot by two different things. British cryptography is actually very weak in 1939. And when you're comparing what happens to the British and the Germans in the Second World War, you need to understand the Germans start out with lots of targets that are fairly easy to penetrate. The British, on the other hand, are looking at the German enigma system for military communications. And they had no success in breaking into it until August 1939, when their allies, the Poles, provide them with material on how the Poles had broken into that system up until a year ago when they'd lost access. Now, what happens in the next year is the British begin to realize the weakness in their code breaking, and they start to improve it. But it really takes two years to get by that. At the same time, through one of the most extraordinary events in intelligence history, the British are able to break into the Enigma system, which is extremely difficult to do, and on top of that, conceptualize how to build a machine and then build more machines that can allow you to break the system. And then finally, they get someone to design a workable machine. And for what it's worth, designing the workable machine is actually very hard. What Alan Turing and Gordon Welchman do in conceptual terms is much harder. But even if they had succeeded and there had not been Doc Keane working for British tabulating machines, and they didn't have a machine able to cash in on their conceptual advances, Britain could not have broken the Enigma. So what that means, in effect, is that in, say, by the beginning of 1940, the British are beginning to do something which nobody else can do, break into crypto machines as sophisticated as Enigma, and they're beginning to protect their own communications better. But it's not until 1942 that the British really develop a clear lead 
in the balance of sword and shield against the Germans and the Italians who aren't bad either for what it's worth. But from 1942 until the end of the war, it's a one-sided battle. And Britain is able to provide SIGINT both to its forces and the Americans, which becomes a very important combat multiplier in winning the war. I don't think SIGINT has much to do with saving Britain's bacon in the war. And if Britain had not been a powerful state with good leaders, the combat multiplier effect wouldn't have been that large. But because Britain and its American allies, not to mention the Commonwealth, are powerful states, well-led, their leadership is competent, competent to outstanding, and they suddenly have this excellent material available to them, which they use very well. How about politically? Because although the work at Bletchley may have not on its own helped Britain win the war, but politically by 1942, Britain and the Allies were not doing particularly well in the war. So is crypto analysis and the work that's going on there and Britain's prowess in this area, is it the golden goose that politically Britain can offer to the US as a major contribution and keeping their role equal at the table during the war? Well, the answer is yes. The British remain top dog in crypto analysis. They and the two major American agencies, the American Army and Navy, each have second agencies, cooperate pretty closely. The American Army cooperates more thoroughly. But the British remain the dominant figure in Europe. The British and their Commonwealth allies become secondary adjuncts to the Americans in the Pacific. The British and the Australians give a lot to Americans in the Pacific, but I don't go into a huge amount of detail about that. In Europe, Yes, the British are the important figure. Now, what I'd say is you need to remember the British position in the alliance erodes from 1942 to 44. And indeed, by 1944, the Americans are pretty angry at the British. That ends after the war. The anger is really over how to fight it. And by 1944, the Americans think the British are demanding more than they should get. Let's put it that way. But SIGINT remains a major card in the British hand. And what I argue in the book is that in particular, what happens is that when the Americans enter the war, the British and Americans have worked out plans about how to use their forces. And their strategies are different. The Mediterranean strategy the British have been pursuing since the summer of 1940 isn't something the Americans really like. But my argument is that because Ultra makes it much easier to conduct the Mediterranean strategy, from, let's say, the spring of 42 that it had been before, what that does is actually make it easier for the British to get the Americans to follow their strategy in 1942-43. And finally, what happens in 1943-44 is that the Americans really demand that the British participate in the invasion of France, which the British chiefs of staff agree needs to be done. Winston himself is much more dubious, but... The British military establishment is firmly convinced that you have to do a D-Day. And again, when that happens, ultra is fundamental to your ability to launch successful amphibious assaults on a defended shoreline. I mean, we think of what happens with the Allied invasions of Normandy, Italy, Sicily, as being very easy, and therefore we underrate how hard they are. Actually, they are among the most difficult military operations in history. And the fact that they work so well is partly due to British intelligence and deception. 
Those are areas where the British lead the world, period. And the Americans are happy to leave all of that in Europe to the British. But as we move towards 1944 and the war looks increasingly like it's won, doesn't Churchill's head start to move towards more of a post-war, Cold War thinking and some of the issues that might crop up against a cunning Stalin, whereas Roosevelt and the Americans are kind of stuck in making sure they win this war? How much of a consideration was British prowess in its code-breaking? How much of a consideration was it for Stalin and the post-war world? Were they pretty worried about just how capable the British were at this and the British knowing their secrets? Because, of course, the Soviets have got a reputation for being spy masters. Well, the Soviets knew a fair amount about British intelligence, but they don't know the whole story. They also know a lot about American intelligence. Soviet intelligence on the Germans is not particularly good when it comes to military matters. Soviet intelligence on its allies is very good when it comes to almost anything. For what it's worth, Churchill is willing to cut a deal with Stalin in 1944-45. He's pursuing a two-track route. One is, let's see if we can make a deal that works. And the other is, let's come up with a plan B in case it doesn't work. But part of the problem with Plan B is you do not know what the Americans are going to do. Now, strangely enough, SIGINT proves to be, in an unexpected way for the British, a means to figure out what the Americans are planning to do. Because as you get into the spring of 1945, both the British and the American governments and SIGINT agencies are saying, what are we going to do with each other when the war is over? And the American Navy and Army codebreakers look at the history of their dealings with the British, and the conclusions are the British have lived up to all the promises they made. Even when the conclusion is one-sided, they have been giving us access to technical material freely. If we ask for anything, they give it to us. They let us see everything they're doing. And then the second question for the Americans is, all right, are the British better than we are? And the answer implicitly is yes. The British are better than we are at code-breaking. Now, what happens in the summer of 1945 is that, in effect, the British and American code-breaking agencies approach each other and say, when the war is over, should we continue cooperating? And they both say, yeah. Both turn to their governments, and both of their governments say, yes. The American Joint Chiefs of Staff send a memorandum to President Truman saying that, in the future, an atomic Pearl Harbor is possible. And in order to protect ourselves from that, it is a vital national requirement that we continue our wartime cooperation with the British and signals intelligence. Now, you can't be much stronger than that. Essentially, they're saying, if we're going to do well in the future, we must continue to work with the British. And so in the autumn of 1945, two things happen. The British and Americans and the Canadians continue to work together as they had been doing. They switched their emphasis to Soviet targets. You know, as soon as the war against Germany is over, the British start turning all their surplus intercept capability against Soviet targets, which they'd ignored for several years in order to map out what the target environment is. And the second thing that happens is the British and Americans negotiate what comes to be called first the British-United States Agreement of Rusa but then almost immediately, UKUSA, which is a, and to phrase this very carefully, it's not a treaty. It's not a state-to-state treaty. It is an arrangement between subnational elements 
in the British and American and later Canadian, Australian, New Zealand governments by which they define how they will cooperate against targets and how they will work with each other, where they will share things and where they won't. The political superiors to the SIGINT agencies know what is happening. They're fully informed in broad terms, but they're allowed to escape any involvement in it. Now, if you remember what happens after the Second World War, the American Congress has an open commission into the attack on Pearl Harbor, and they end up publishing 10 million words or more on the Pearl Harbor issue, much of which comes to focus on SIGINT, which scares and frightens the British and American SIGINT agencies because they realize this is a major compromise. On top of that, however, the Republican minority in the report tries to build an FDR conspiracy theory into the issue. And what this does is cause the American military authorities to say, we have to cushion President Truman. We have to cushion any future American president from being accused of this sort of thing. And so, in fact, the Americans deliberately keep Ukuza as secret as they possibly can. And the British say fine. So what this means is you end up creating what I would say is one of the two most important diplomatic or strategic arrangements Britain has entered into in the past century that were not negotiated by diplomats. The other one, of course, is the famous pre-1914 staff talks between the British general staff and the French general staff, which leads to developing the plans to deploy a British army on the continent should Britain choose to go to war to help France against Germany. Ukuza is an arrangement about that significance. It's negotiated purely by British SIGINTERS and on the American side by American military and naval officers because American SIGINTERS are much less autonomous than British ones are then. But essentially what it does is set your two countries, the British and Americans, and Canada, which is essentially involved from the start, later joined by Australia and New Zealand, down a path that continues today. And that path means that the SIGINT agencies of those five countries, the so-called Five Eyes, cooperate with each other and exchange information with each other more than any of them do with their other military or intelligence colleagues. So GCHQ knows much more about what NSA is doing than CIA does than the Department of Defense does. And since SIGINT is far and away the most important form of secret intelligence, which all governments normally treat as being the crown jewel of their intelligence service, Ukuza therefore becomes a genuinely bizarre, anomalous political agreement. I can't use the word treaty, but there is no other international strategic agreement, anything like Ukuza. And it only happens because those five countries have never fundamentally broken with each other on major strategic issues since 1942. So in essence, modern day Ukuza is a direct descendant unbroken of the Anglo-American-Canadian SIGINT arrangements that emerged in 1942. You see, that explains so much because that must be why the Snowden revelations, the leaks are so damaging, and the leaks to the Guardian newspaper as well. And we can bring it right up to date now. I mean, does that really damage this special relationship between the UK and the US? 
The answer is yes, but within limits. The Americans have always been much more leaky than the Brits when it comes to intelligence and SIGINT because of all of the stuff that they'll be in company. There's a tendency to think that the Brits are unusually leaky. In fact, the Soviets penetrated the French, the Germans, and the Americans more than they did Britain in the 1930s and 40s. And in the history of SIGINT, there have been very few leaks from GCHQ. There have been a large number of major leaks from American SIGINT, some of which are really important. Like in 1957-58, the British and Americans together are able to figure out how to gather really important SIGINT on Kapuzin Yar, which is the Soviet ICBM, or Medium Range Ballistic Missile Testing Ground. And SIGINT is providing very accurate information on the weapons, the Soviet delivery systems, the Soviets are using. This is big news. Well, somebody blows it to aviation news. Fortunately, they don't blow what the British are doing. They only blow what the Americans are doing. And so the British contribution goes on being really important all the way through to the mid-70s. So the idea that you get a leak out of D.C. is not new to the Brits. And both British and American signatures recognize what I've said. The Snowden issue, and here I have to emphasize, I have no classified information on this. But yeah, the British were very unhappy, in part because if you look carefully at the material Snowden got access to, it was material GCHQ provided to NSA, which Snowden in turn was able to pick up and release. So when the Snowden material came out, this was when I wasn't in any way associated with GCHQ. I simply copied everything that came out. And I noticed immediately that a substantial amount of what was coming out was GCHQ product, or end product as they call it. And what it showed to me, again, before I got involved with this project, was that boy, the British are doing pretty good technically. The Americans are really impressed by what the British are doing. And the British are still clearly at the top of the world in SIGINT. I thought that was very interesting. Now for the Americans, it's been more traumatic. Snowden is just the tip of the iceberg. There have been a number of other leaks coming out of NSA in the past several years, which caused me, purely from the outside, and as somebody who likes NSA a lot and thinks we need them to protect themselves, there is a real security problem. They have not been able to keep things inside their organization the way they should. When you read the details of how it works, you just shake your head. Snowden was the network administrator, so he got several medium-level NSA officers to give him the passwords <laughs> to their own accounts. So that allowed him to get access to lots of material he should not have had otherwise. But what it did, what the Snowden stuff did, I would argue, I'm very hard-headed here. First of all, I think the only people who really gained from Snowden were the Russians, the Chinese, and cyber criminals. It damaged us relative to everyone else. The material that came out for me as an analyst is great to read. I read it all, I'm uh, happy to have seen it. But nothing that came out in any fundamental way was proof that GCHQ or NSA or the Canadian security establishment had broken the law or that what they were doing was wrong. The problem is when the material came out, nobody, I mean any, nobody, including people like me, or even more, people like Bruce Schneer, among the best experts at the time and now you know, on cyber issues, none of us understood for quite a while exactly what was going on. 
It took me about two months of reading the material on Snowden to suddenly say, wait a minute, what they're saying, if you read between the lines, is we can intercept a huge amount of material that we can't actually ever touch or process. When we're touching this stuff, what we're really looking for are indications of who is communicating with whom. And suddenly I said, wait a minute, okay, they are able to read like 0.00001% of the communications they intercept. And suddenly at that moment, I said, do the math. It really means that they're much more restricted and restrained than press commentary is saying. And when I became the authorized historian, I talked to one director of GCHQ, and I used the metaphor in the book, ex-director, who said, look, if you imagine all of the communications in the world that could be intercepted are a billiards table, then a beer mat represents all of the communications that we can intercept and hold for any period of time, because you hold it and then you have to flush it in order to bring in a new beer mat. And of that amount of material, a full stop or a period is the amount that we can even touch, by which I mean conduct traffic analysis against. And I would then say that if you're trying to figure out how much of that you can actually read after you touch it, much, much smaller. So in essence, what you've got is a situation where you can vacuum much more material in than you can actually even process. But if you go on doing this day after day, you start to be able to figure out who your targets are. You know where you want to put the beer mat on the billiards table. You're able to start figuring out that you're really interested in this IP address against another. And then after a while, you can reconstruct networks of targets you're interested in. And you can also figure out how to conduct normal state-to-state -state traffic. And it doesn't bother me ever if GCHQ reads Russian traffic or German government traffic or Japanese. In the world of intelligence, there are very few people you don't try to gather intelligence on. The Five Eyes Agreement is we do not work against each other. And they stick up to them. But that doesn't mean we don't go after communications of our allies. And I guarantee the French and Germans go after our communications too. We're all on the same side, but we do have a lot of different interests and we conduct intelligence against each other. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, 
all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Well, it is fascinating to hear that the British still lead the way in terms of co-breaking and SIGINT. And I could talk about Bletchley or Snowden all day. But we've spoken about the First World War. We've spoken about the Second World War, the Cold War, and the modern day. Take us into the interwar years. Were these years of success for British code-breaking? Or did we take a break? Was there less pressure put on our services? Because reading your book, one of the episodes, if I get down to it, that really, really fascinated me was the Chinat crisis and the role that Codebreakers and Sigintel played during that period at, well, averting another war, I think. Yes, I mean, I was the first person to find the material on the Chinat crisis and Codebreaking, and I've written more about it than anyone else. And I'll talk about that in a second. After the First World War, every major country and many secondary countries realized they're going to have to maintain permanent Codebreaking agencies, second agencies. And a lot of them do. And countries like Sweden, Finland, Poland actually end up being very good. But the British end up having, I'd say, the best of them all during the interwar years, although that advantage is eroding in the late 1930s, in part because British security is so, I have to say, incompetent, that the Italians and the Soviets are able to pick up lots and lots of British codebooks as they do codebooks of many other countries, which means that they're actually reading a lot of communications, but they don't know how to do it through cryptanalytic means. So when the war breaks out, the British actually are able to continue their previous levels of success when the Italians and Soviets can't, because the British had always been doing cryptanalysis, and the Italians and Russians relied heavily on being able to steal copies of codebooks. So the British end up, after 1919, creating a loosely unified system which focuses on diplomatic code breaking, but also lets the army, navy, air force, the dominions, and strangely enough, the metropolitan police create their own interception organizations. The metropolitan police has a lot of ex-First World War radio operators who like to intercept traffic. They start to work against unknown traffic, which proves to be espionage related in the late 20s. And so they're taken on. And they're a very technically proficient group. Now, the Shannon crisis happens at the tail end of the First World War, which doesn't end when we think it does. In the Middle East, the First World War doesn't really end until 1923. When you have November 1918, the British and the French imagine, gee, the Turks are beaten. We can dominate all of the Middle East. As it turns out, they're not beaten. And so 1920, 21, 22, the British and their French and Italian allies are still holding modern-day Istanbul, trying to impose their will on Turkey. The Turkish nationalists rebuild an army and a state. They're able to destroy an attempt by the Greeks to invade them. And then suddenly what happens in September 1922 is the Greeks are completely driven out of what's now modern-day Turkey. The Turkish armies advance on allied forces around the Sea of Marmara, especially Istanbul. 
who were temporarily grossly outnumbered. The British begin to mobilize forces, but they won't get there for about six weeks. So there's a period of time, a couple of different weeks, when in fact, if the Turks really want to attack the British, French, and Italians, they've got a pretty good chance. Now, what happens in this context is that there's a British general nicknamed Tim Harrington, really his name is Charles Harrington, who is the commander of British forces in Turkey. Harrington had been chief of staff to the second British army under Plummer, which was the most professional of all of the British armies in France. And Harrington actually was himself involved in the process to have intelligence disseminated effectively through armies. And also he's been reading the communications of everybody involved in the Turkish issue in the previous 18 months. So he's an extremely experienced character. And essentially what happens is that SIGINT for the British shows lots of stuff during the Shannon crisis, which is both alarming and good news. It shows that the Russians are trying to get the Turks to start a war, which is pretty alarming. It's not clear what the Turks are thinking about. It's clear that they might go to war, and they certainly plan to pursue tough demands that the Allies evacuate Istanbul. It shows that the French and the Italians are no longer cooperating fully with the British, and that the Italians are betraying the British Allies. It shows, however, that the French are not. The French and the British have split, but the French are living up to the alliance in the sense that they will not betray the British, but they believe British policy has been disastrously incompetent. And by the way, I think they're right, frankly. And so what Stigand does during the, the Shannock crisis is, first of all, allow Harrington, who's commanding this garrison in Istanbul, to pursue a really courageous, bold policy. He sends British forces to the portions of mainland Turkey across from the Gallipoli Peninsula, a town called Shanak, modern Kanakali, if you look at the Turkish map, which is at the tip of the straits going from the Aegean Sea into the Marmara, which would help you to send transports back and forth. And he dares the Turks to try to attack him. What he's really basically saying to the Turks is, look, you're not going to get any fruit. You're going to have to sit down and talk to me. It also creates major crises between the British government and Harrington because the British government is getting very good signal. It's got consumers like Churchill and Lord George who are very experienced. They've been using SIGINT for a very large number of years. Churchill, in fact, is the man who created the organization called ID25 or Room 40 in 1914. And the information that they're getting and Harrington are getting is slightly variant. And the cabinet is trying to micromanage what Harrington is doing without understanding what he's doing. And they don't understand what he's thinking. Finally, there is a 36-year difference in terms of the information picture available to Harrington in Istanbul and the British government in Whitehall. And it takes like 12 hours to move a telegram from Istanbul to Whitehall and vice versa. So what happens is that the British cabinet famously on the 29th of October, 1922, interprets material from Harrington to indicate that he's afraid of the circumstances and that he's afraid the Turks are going to attack. And because they're convinced that Harrington is losing his nerve, they order him to open fire on the Turks. 
Now, the aim is not to start a war. The aim, in fact, is to fire at the Turks so the Turks know that you are serious and then make them negotiate. Well, Harrington rejects the order. And what that does is actually start the process that within a week destroys Lloyd George's government. This is the spark which sets off the collapse of the Lloyd George coalition, which is one of the most important political events of the interwar years in Britain. But what, you have to really put this in context. What Harrington says to the cabinet is this, I'm not worried for right now. I am worried about five days from now. I don't need to open fire yet, but if I do have to open fire, I will. I see indications, and here he's referring to Sigan, that the Turks, in fact, do not want to go to war, that the Turks, in fact, are willing to be stopped and negotiate. And here Harrington, both Harrington and the cabinet are looking at different forms of SIGINT and drawing different lessons from it. And Harrington's SIGINT about the Turks is something the cabinet hadn't yet seen, which is part of where the 36-hour difference becomes important. And then finally, the very next thing Harrington does is to deliver an ultimatum zone to the Turks. So after ignoring the cabinet's order that he opened fire, he then says to the Turks, if you do not do the following X, Y, Z in the next few days, I will open fire on you and there will be war. So people very often look at what happened with the cabinet's order to open fire in the Shannon crisis. And they think that Lloyd George and company were warlike, belligerent, idiotic. In fact, what I would say is that they're operating in a really confused environment where their intelligence offers a mixed message. And they think that Harrington is losing his nerve. And it's that that drives them. Now, the thing is, Harrington actually is under immense stress. He is a high-strung character. This is well known. He is having sleepless nights. He's sick sometimes. And he's in a really dangerous position. He knows that if he does the wrong thing, he could start a world war. He also knows that if he does the wrong thing, the Turks will seize the city of Istanbul. Now, the Turks have just, in the course of driving the Greeks out of Anatolia, driven the entire Greek and Armenian population on the Aegean coast out of Anatolia. And what had happened in the port of Smyrna, which is now called Izmir, is quite literally the Turks forced the entire Christian population of Izmir after conducting some bloody ethnic cleansing, quite literally into the water off the beach. And what happens is an international convoy of European merchant ships brings these people off Anatolia. Well, Harrington, as he thinks about war, says, you know, I'll lose control of Istanbul if war breaks out. I cannot hold it. And that will mean that several hundred thousand Greeks and Armenians are going to be smyrna so there is immense responsibility on Harrington's back. What I would say about Harrington is that it's amazing to me that he makes the good decisions he does under all this stress, because actually he is able to force the Turks into negotiating with the British. And he does that in part by saying very quietly to the Turks, if we negotiate, we're going to give you most of what you want. But if you don't negotiate, you're going to go to war. What would you rather do? So he's actually making a claim to the Turks that if they follow his demands about form, that they'll get almost everything they want in terms of content. But the second dimension is really important here. My analysis of the Shannon crisis actually is now accepted widely by historians. If you look at Zara Steiner's brilliant 
1,000 page book on international politics in the 20s. She spends about five or six pages that basically just describes what I've written about it. And of Zara, the greatest diplomatic historian of the past 20 or 30 years, now dead, alas, could do that. And I think that the arguments had some strength. So without the SIGINT records, you don't understand why things happened in China. And secondly, without the SIGINT capabilities that are available, Harrington could not have played his hand as well as he does. And finally, without the weird differences in the SIGINT picture available to Whitehall and Harrington, maybe the way the coalition government collapses, which really matters to British history, would have taken a different form. So SIGINT really is very important in all of these issues. And if you go through the record of lots of different issues in the interwar years, the picture is similar. If you look at what happens in, say, appeasement and the history of the relationship between the British government and Germany, Italy and Japan in the last two years before August 39, the SIGINT picture is really very important for explaining what happens. Well, John, you've done it. You've taken us through <laughs> over 100 years of history of British signals intelligence and code breaking and you really have reminded us with that final bit of history just how important it is to have some good rational thinkers in the right place at the right time with the right intelligence now tell us where can people read more about this history the book is coming out in paperback in a few months you should be able to get it at any bookstore that is open if not any organization that you can order books from will have it. And understandably so. It is a fascinating history. And just to give people the title, it is Behind the Enigma, the Authorised History of GCHQ, Britain's Secret Cyber Intelligence Agency. And actually, I'm going to take the liberty to ask you one final question, John. How on earth do you become the authorised historian of GCHQ and what limitations did they put on you? That's a very good question. I'm a Canadian, and because I come from a Five Eyes country, it is possible, although not easy, for British or American SIGINT to have me work for them. So in fact, in 2008, I was the cryptologic historical scholar in residence at the National Security Agency, dealing with unclassified material. Essentially, I'm probably the historian who has been dealing with signals intelligence records in Britain for the longest time. I started doing it really since 1982. And this is at a time when the conventional wisdom was you can't say anything about GCHQ. Everybody believed that the material had been so thoroughly weeded that you couldn't find it. And as it turned out by accident, my PhD dissertation, which was on British strategy after the First World War, made me look through a wide range of records, and suddenly I found that the British hadn't weeded as thoroughly as people thought. And when I told this to other people, they said to me either, you must be mistaken, or alternately, well, okay, you've seen this, but you can't tell anything in terms of a story from it. And so I got frustrated. And as a PhD student, essentially, I started doing a second PhD, which you wouldn't be allowed to get away with today. But what I did was I was finishing off my dissertation, and that became one of my main strings of work later on. I started to work systematically at finding SIGINT records. Now, that meant I had to learn all sorts of things I didn't know about. Nowadays, if you want to know the history of SIGINT or things that are associated with it, you can find it through Google searches. You could actually learn a lot of technical issues simply by going online. When I was doing this in the early 80s, you couldn't. You had to go to really good 
depositories, like the Library of the Imperial War Museum, in order to find collections of material on exactly how code-breaking worked. I had to learn how radio worked in order to understand how radio interception worked. I found that there was a small body of writings that people had done after the war and published that actually told me a lot. And so I started to publish from 1987 onward in the history of GCNCS. I did things like realize that if you wanted to find records in the British military that referred to SIGINT, well, oddly enough, signals files did. Because signals files have to refer to signal security. And they have to keep the signal security files open. Because those files, in fact, are disseminated broadly among signals officers. And in turn, if you look at signal security, you can then learn a lot about SIGINT. And so the end result was that I was publishing steadily from 1987, a body of work that was read by the people in British and American SIGINT who were interested in history. And I actually had a reputation, I didn't know it at the time, within the agencies for actually understanding what SIGINT was and not being a poser and in actually being able to reconstruct how it had worked. And I also had a reputation for showing SIGINTers things they didn't know about their own history. And sometimes they were actually stunned. So in 1992, I published a collection in the Army Records Society of material on the British Army and SIGINT of the First World War, which had a very big audience among the intelligence SIGINT people who were interested in history because they knew nothing of the things I would show. Now, what that meant was that I developed ties with members of the American and British SIGINT community retired or serving within limits all the way from, I'd say, the mid-90s onward, it became possible for these people to talk to people outside of their own community. Now, when GCHQ decided that it was going to publish its authorized history, there really weren't that many other people they could consider. And so ultimately, GCHQ made me the offer I couldn't refuse, which was GCHQ would pay my university enough money that they would second me to GCHQ I would still be an entirely independent historian and that they, GCHQ wouldn't censor outside of the agreement as to what I could see and write about at the start. They said, we had a huge amount of material and you wouldn't be able to read it all, which is true. If I had been put in front of all of the files that are in the GCHQ archive, I couldn't have read them all even by then. What we'll do is not give you access to anything on diplomatic code breaking after the Second World War for political reasons. We won't give you access to anything that is of current technical applicability. Now that's a broader issue than you might think. There's a lot of stuff from the late 60s onward, which I'm not allowed to write about and which I'm not allowed to talk about because I've signed the Official Secrets Act, which is still currently applicable. I was given access to interviews with people under essentially the deepest form of journalistic cover you can imagine. I could quote what they said, but I couldn't say who had said it, which is really the best way to phrase it, deep journalistic access. And I was given complete access to the military side of a number of crises, especially the Falklands conflicts. But the diplomatic side, which I did occasionally see, I was not allowed to refer to directly unless it was in the public domain. So the end result is that 
it's not a complete account. There are lots of things I didn't see, but I saw what I would say is a representative range of the most important files available to GCHQ. And for the first time, I could talk about things like, what were their targets? How did they collect intelligence? How were they paid? How much money did they get? And I can tell you, GCHQ, in fact, was a cheap date from the point of view of Britain and the Cold War. It really is not that expensive. But GCHQ remains actually Britain's biggest means to maintain access to American intelligence through the Cold War because NSA and GCHQ develop a working relationship, which is really close. NSA trusts GCHQ to be both loyal and competent. And essentially, the division of labor meant that even in the 1970s and 80s, if Cusa had fallen apart, the Americans would probably have had to increase their expenditure on SIGINT by 30 or 40 percent to make up for what they weren't getting any longer from the Brits. So when all of the material comes out, there'll be much more material available than I saw. And some of what I saw will be redacted before it's released. But GCHQ plans to release most of the material to the National Archives in the next several years. And part of why they wanted a history written was so that essentially there'd be an explanation available to anyone interested in looking at the documents of what they could expect to see. For me as an authorized historian, the good news is it means that anybody who criticizes me for being a lapdog, I can say, look, wait two to five years and you'll have the opportunity to see whether I was or not. And I wasn't. Although I'm very, very impressed by GCHQ as an organization, I read a lot of critical things about it because every organization screws up at one point or another. And the other thing, finally, is there's something called equities, which is Five Eyes intelligence jargon, essentially, for a situation where one agency cooperates with another. Each agency, therefore, has the right to veto some elements of the release of that documentation. So in the early 1980s, the Americans wanted to release material about strategic deception from the Second World War. Mrs. Thatcher was opposed to the idea. And a senior GCHQ liaison in NSA wrote a memorandum straight to the director of NSA saying, look, you can't publish. You want to publish this stuff? We can't let you. Now, that equities issue meant that when I'd written my manuscript, it had to then be seen by every intelligence agency GCHQ cooperated with. They could remove themselves from my story, as several agencies did. Had NSA not been very cooperative, my story couldn't have been told at all. But NSA, in fact, was extremely cooperative. And the only things they removed, I think, were justified for political or technical reasons. Finally, GCHQ ended up giving me access to a lot more material than we had originally planned. The book was supposed to end in 1992, the end of the Cold War. But as time went on, as we were writing, and we got more familiar with each other, we all agreed that really the story should go up to the year I ended writing, because so much happened between the end of the Cold War and today. And because it was important to be able to say to people, look, the world is not the way it was before. I'm writing a history of an age which has passed. And I will show you in my last chapter the main outlines of the age we are entering into, which is a very different one. 
You know, in my age, it's state to state focused on high frequency military traffic. Today, it's state and society versus state and society. Cyber criminals have some SIGINT capabilities, which no criminals really had before 1992. And all of us as individuals are exposed to SIGINT from other states or cyber criminals or cyber terrorists. And so in order to explain the new world we're in and the new techniques that SIGINT agencies have to use if they're going to conduct SIGINT, really takes up my last chapter. And GCHQ gave me access to enough material to make it work. That last chapter, which is actually the one that I wish people most would read, because it's telling you what the world we're emerging into is like. And it's not a very pleasant one. I actually don't like it. But nonetheless, what it means is that we as private citizens are now caught up in SIGINT in ways that did not happen in the Cold War. And private corporations, foreign governments, cyber criminals are able to directly involve themselves in our lives one way or another as individual people in ways which I'm really not very happy with. But you know, who says an historian has to be happy about what they're writing? Well, you should be pretty happy because I can tell all our listeners out there that as a historian, that's as good as it's going to get in terms of access. I've been in some secret archives where you've got someone standing over you, almost over your shoulder at all times, and you can't even go to the bathroom without someone following you there. So you've done pretty well there, and it makes the book all the richer for it. I'm sure there are going to be many more books to come as well, so you're always welcome. But for now, thank you so much for your time, John. Thank you very much. Take care. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.